1: Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II Podcast, Episode 271, The Battle of Jitra. Last time, acting British Admiral Tom Phillips took Force Z up the Malayan coast to impede any Japanese invasion. However, as he sailed up with no air cover, and the land-based enemy bombers were lucky enough to locate the British ships, The question of superiority between air and sea forces had been settled once and for all, with both capital ships being lost, which only made the situation worse for Lieutenant General Arthur Percival, General Officer Commanding Malaya and Singapore, who was still determined to delay as much as possible the occupation of Singapore. The loss of Force Z sent shockwaves through London, But truth be told, Force Z was never large enough in the first place to be a deterrent to Japanese ambitions, nor large enough or balanced enough to stop those ambitions once they were launched. Moreover, the British, like the Americans, had little regard for the abilities of the Japanese bombers and fighters, namely their range. So, it would not have mattered if someone else had been in charge besides Phillips, any other British Admiral would have also sailed north, air umbrella or no, and the results would have been the same. Even if the British had put up land-based air cover, the inadequate Buffalo fighters would have only given the Japanese Zeros target practice before the accompanying bombers would have taken Force Z out. With elements of the Japanese 5th Division having landed successfully at Singora and Patani in southern Thailand, They moved south as fast as they could, in keeping with their commander's demand for speed. The road from Singora, the more southern of the two port cities, that went practically due south to Alor Star in northern Malaya, was used by the largest invasion force. This force was made up of the 14th and 41st Infantry Regiments of the Ninth Infantry Brigade, and in support was a battalion of tanks and artillery each. Meanwhile, protecting their left or more inland flank was the 42nd Infantry Regiment that had marched on the town of Crow, where Lt. Col. Henry Moreshead's latest defensive position was. The 42nd was supported by two light tank companies and a battery of artillery. In other words, more than the defenders could hope to take on, unless fully backed by air support, which they would not be. A decision made, by the RAF. Lying in wait to stop the main Japanese force coming down the road from Singora was the 11th Indian Infantry Division, commanded by Major General David Murray Lyon. It was holed up in the town of Jitra, about 15 miles south of the Thai border, and 11 and a half miles or 18 and a half kilometers north of the Lower Star. As for the lay of the land, it wasn't the best for defense. But it was the best there was. Besides, the main point was that it was just north of the airfield at Alor Star, and that's all that mattered. The last thing GOC Percival wanted was the Japanese operating their aircraft out of Alor Star. Not that that mattered overall. As previously covered, within days of their invasion, the Japanese would control three other airfields that were left more than less, operational, at Kota Baru and at Machong, about 30 miles due south of Kota Maru, and Kongde Ka, about the same distance away, but closer to the eastern shore. But the other irony is that the airstrip at Allura Star had already been abandoned by the RAF on December 9th. Hence, Lieutenant General Sir Louis Heath was putting his men more forward than they needed to be, to defend a place he couldn't win, for no reason. Something akin to panic and a lack of communication was plaguing the Commonwealth troops. The men of the 11th Indian Division would have had a better defense set up, but at first, they thought they were going to be a part of Operation Matador, which, as we saw, never came off. So, as they rushed to the defensive line at Jitra, just north of Alor Star, they would find that the heavy rains had left their field telephone cables submerged and now ineffective. Moreover, some of their trenches and gun pits were also flooded, but still had to be manned, which did not help morale. Their disposition was thus. On the right flank, the 15th Indian Infantry Brigade was ordered to hold a front some 6,000 yards wide which included the main road. This force was made up of the 1st Battalion of the Leicestershire Regiment, the 1st Battalion, 14th Punjab Regiment, and the 2nd Battalion, 9th Jats. These Indians generally hailed from the subcontinent near the border with modern-day Pakistan. Covering the left flank was the 6th Indian Infantry Brigade, which was to hold a front three times as wide as the right flank as it extended all the way to the coast. This brigade was comprised of the 2nd Battalion East Surrey Regiment, the 1st Battalion 8th Punjab, and the 2nd Battalion 16th Punjab Regiment. Behind this front was the artillery of the 155th Field Regiment and the 22nd Mountain Regiment, but also the 80th Anti-Tank Regiment. It was hoped they would give the enemy light tanks A surprise, with two ambush points set up, which may cause, hopefully, the attackers to hold up for a few days, so the 11th Indian Infantry Division, as a whole, could strengthen their overall defenses. In reserve was the 28th Indian Infantry Brigade, ready to charge forward wherever needed. All told, the British were holding a front of some 14 miles, or 23 kilometers which went across both roads in the area and a railway that was on the left-hand side. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. The two ambush points were set up near a town called Cheng Lung, which means fallen elephant. As this was the best the weaker of the defending units could put up against the coming Japanese, it was hoped that the two pounders of the 4th Mountain Battery, along with the 114th Punjab of Lieutenant Colonel Fitzpatrick, would give the enemy a short, sharp smack. Anything that gained time was to the good. But sure enough, after the Japanese had repaired the bridge and some roads, the lead elements came down the trunk road at 11 p.m. on December 10th. The leading two tanks were quickly taken out by accurate fire from the 4th Mountain Battery, which caused the Japanese infantry near them to rush forward to try to recover the crews. This allowed the Punjabis to inflict further casualties. Their work here done, the battery unit and the Punjabis pulled back to the south of Changlung, but still north of the Lower Star. By the next morning, December 11th, the most southern Japanese units ran into the front-line Indian troops, but here again, the Punjabis had set up another ambush. However, as it was daylight, the Japanese had a better sense Of what was about to happen. And, having more men than the defenders, they were able to send a flanking unit to their far left, the defenders' right. Fitzpatrick wasn't willing to lose his whole unit just to take out a few more enemy troops, hence, he pulled them back even more. Meanwhile, Major General David Murray Leone, commander of the 11th Indian Division, who had been impressed, maybe overly so with the first and only ambush, wanted another one. So he went personally to Fitzpatrick's headquarters, who commanded the 114th Punjab. After a short talk, it was decided that there was to be another ambush near another village called Assun. As Lieutenant Colonel James Fitzpatrick's headquarters was south of his men, he did not have to go as far to reach Assun. So he expected his men, who had already been outflanked by the Japanese, to catch up to him as soon as they could. However, that's when the heavy rains returned. So heavy, in fact, that visibility was down to just a few yards, which caused the 1-14th Punjab, when it loaded up, to be facing north instead of south. The men moved out and ran right into the approaching Japanese, who had their remaining tanks close by. The Punjabis panicked and scattered, making no attempt to put up a fight. It was every man for himself. All told, only 200 men or so managed to evade the Japanese and make for Fitzpatrick's current location. When Fitzpatrick was brought up to date, any idea of another smoothly executed ambush was out of the question. The Japanese had to be close by, so the lieutenant colonel gathered up all the men who had managed to reach him, along with his small headquarters force, and they formed up. But when the enemy showed themselves, their tanks came in first. Fitzpatrick was one of the first men to be wounded. Another officer, Garrett, grabbed the remaining men, about 270, and retreated further south. The Japanese next ran into the two first gurkha rifle battalion. Unlike other units, the gurkhas did not have any serious anti tank weapons, but they did have a fast flowing stream in front of them and demolition charges. If they couldn't stop the Japanese, they would blow the bridge and gain time regardless. When the Japanese tanks were spotted, the word was given and the switch was thrown. But nothing happened. It was probably the rain, but the bridge still stood and the tanks were getting closer. Just then, Man Bahadur Guran, with the rank of Halvidar, the Indian equivalent to a British sergeant, grabbed one of the few boys' anti tank rifles, laid down, and took aim at the leading tank. The boys' anti tank rifle or elephant gun, as it was called, was some 35 pounds heavy and just over 5 feet long. Think of it as a really large rifle that shoots fifty-five caliber shells. In many ways, this anti-tank rifle was already on its way to being obsolete. Not only were the Germans putting out tanks that were relatively safe from this gun, but the Axis had already more effective anti-tank guns of their own. Fortunately for the Gurkhas, they were dealing with Type 95 light and Type 97 medium tanks. The gun held ten shells, and Gurun used those to stop the first two tanks as they tried to cross the bridge. But the tanks supporting infantry reacted professionally to this setback and crossed the stream on both sides of the bridge. Also, their movements were covered by experienced mortar crews, and machine gun fire. On the opposite side of the stream, the Gurkhas were the opposite of the Japanese, with little training or experience. As such, they soon broke and ran. But even in this, nothing was very organized. Most of the men were captured, leaving about 200 out of the 550-man unit to flee south. As the Gurkhas had been covering the right flank, the more center area, where the main road was, was open for advancement, which meant Lieutenant Colonel Sakai Shizuo, who was shamed by losing two tanks in the initial ambush, and two more here on the bridge, had overall recovered nicely, and was finally making his way to the main defending force protecting Alostar, the town of Jitra.
0: Com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living, available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: With the main battle about to get underway, Major General Murray Lyon reorganized his remaining forces. The 2nd East Surrey Regiment was stationed just west of Jitra, while the 216th Punjab Regiment was further left the one eighth Punjab would have been there too, but one they had lost two companies' worth of men during Operation Le, and two the remaining men had been just north of Jitra, but the explosives they were using to destroy the bridge they were at went off early, which left the defenders on the wrong side of the waterway cut off. Many of them had been captured. killed. On the road itself, the 1st Leicestershire Regiment had it covered with the 2 9th Jat Regiment on their right flank. As so many men had been lost by this point, the Reserve 28th Indian Infantry Brigade was brought up to Jitra as well. From it, the 2nd 2nd Gurkha Battalion was placed behind the Leicestershire's, the 28th Brigade's 3rd Battalion, was told to protect the Allure Star airfield. With all these movements, there were no real reserves to call on, and the main battle had not even started. Major General Murray Leon had already started thinking about another retreat. At 8.30 p.m. on December 11th, Lieutenant Colonel Sakai's advance guard, in the form of a tank probe, came down the road. The Commonwealth troops opened up, and two light tanks were quickly taken out. But even in this short engagement, confusion began for the defenders. The two Ninth Jats were told that the Japanese were coming around their right. This led to the majority of the 6th Brigade moving out more to the right to cover it. The good news was that if the Japanese came that way, they would be in for surprise. However, if they stuck to the road, then there were now fewer defenders near the road to stop them. The Japanese, of course, having not flanked hard to their left, the British right, nor faked it, charged again at 3 a.m. on December 12th along the road. This time, the Japanese made more progress, but the British-led troops were able to rectify the situation by first light. Then came a larger attack, to the east or right of the main road, at 6 a.m., in heavy rain. Whether by design or luck, the Japanese charged into an area that happened to be in between the 1st Leicestershire and the 2 9th Chats. This time, the penetration was deep, deep enough that a counterattack had to be called in. Soon, the 1 8th Punjab Battalion came rushing up, but... Due to poor communication, their assault was not coordinated or self-supporting, and the artillery support never materialized. Hence, the Japanese were able to inflict heavy casualties as they retreated in an orderly manner. Now having created a chink in the defenders' armor, this same area to the east of the road was hit again around noon. The penetration this time was further than all before it. The two ninth Jats were pushed aside, with many casualties, and the Japanese continued until they ran into the two second Gurkhas. There weren't many British troops behind them. With there still being plenty of daylight left, relatively speaking, with heavy rain coming down, Major General Murray Leon sent a request to Percival asking to retreat some 30 miles south, to Garun. Not only was the Jitcher line about to break, but another Japanese column was making for Crow, which was, to his, southeast. Should Crow be taken, the Japanese there would have more room to maneuver, which meant the 11th Indian Division's further retreat path would be blocked. Lieutenant General Percival thought this over, but in the end decided to agree to this would make it seem that all was lost. Should the only division in northern Malaya retreat so far, so early? His answer was no. Stay at Jitra and fight. However, Marie Lyon's brigade commanders decided on their own to move back the entire defensive line to where the two second Gurkhas had been at. It wasn't much of a retreat, but it might give the defenders enough space and time to restore their lines. So the first Lesseurs at the front on the right were told to pull back first. They started at 4 p.m. on December 12th, and then they were joined by the two 9th Jats. But then came reports, more false reports, as panic had set in. The Japanese forces were already behind these two retreating units which made them run and when others saw them running they started running too what had been a much needed tactical retreat became a panic fortunately the japanese did not choose this moment to attack in earnest for murray leon having his men so scattered and undone and only having one road to travel on only proved his point that they needed to pull back, or all would be lost. So, at 7.30 p.m., he asked again to be allowed to pull back. This time, Percival gave the go-ahead. But it would not be the saving grace Marie Leone was hoping for. As he had asked for and was given status updates, it seems that the 11th Division had already lost many men, much equipment, and a lot of weapons. As the 11th Indian Infantry Division tried to set up on the south side of a waterway called Sengai Kenda, where the two second 2nd Gurkhas had been, about 10 miles behind the former main line, Murray Lyon assessed his troop strength. The 15th Brigade was down to a quarter of its previous strength. The 6th had also been savaged but the 28th Brigade had lost the least. Incredibly, all this, the mauling of a division, had been done by one Japanese battalion and a company of tanks. True, the Indians lacked experience and had no tanks of their own, but Murray, Leon, and Heath would be hard-pressed to answer for this to Percival. And again, because of the very first pullbacks and then, the massive panic that had just happened, the 11th Division had lost much supplies and weapons, too. The 11th Indian reached Sengai Kedah during the morning of December 13th. Sure enough, the Japanese were right behind them, attempting to cross the water that same morning. They were pushed back, but everyone knew this was only the advance guard. The majority of the enemy troops would be along, soon. But this time, Marie-Leon wasn't going to wait. Straight away, he ordered another retreat, this time to his original destination at Gurun, some 20 miles to the south. The 6th Indian Brigade was given the right flank, the 28th Brigade was placed on the left, and the 15th was to act as a reserve. When the brigades showed up at Gurun, they were already exhausted but they found no fixed defenses in place. Hence, they got to work despite their long march. The next day, on the afternoon of the 14th, the Japanese sent just enough men in to test the resolve of the defenders' new position. This gesture was checked, but mostly because the men were fighting to save themselves, rather than thinking of the defense of Singapore. The Japanese came again the next morning, on the 15th, but this time came in force. First they came, predictably, down the only road, which allowed their tanks to move faster. But then came a strong surge of attackers on the defenders' left side, away from the road. Thus far, all flanking had been done on their right. So this caught the 6th Brigade by surprise the Japanese were able to get into their rear area very quickly. Murray Leon was not going to watch the rest of his command be torn apart. So, when the fighting died down the next morning, the 16th, he ordered another retreat, this one about 20 miles south, near the Muda River, across from modern-day Penang Island, which wasn't good enough for Lieutenant General Heath. That same day... On the 16th, he ordered his division to pull back another 30 miles to the Kron River. As this was a decently wide body of water, not only was he hoping for a strong tank obstacle, but that his men would have the time they needed to rest and set themselves up for the next battle that everyone knew was coming. The problem was, the 11th Indian Division as well as the 9th Indian Infantry Division operating on the East Coast, which was unfortunately pushed back parallel with the faltering 11th Division, had just given up half of the peninsula after a week's worth of fighting. Before too long, Japanese planes, based in northern Malaya, would be able to bomb Singapore directly. Thus, it would be here that Percival would draw his line. Yet within hours, another pullback would be ordered. But the Indian 9th and 11th were still expected to hold back the Japanese tidal wave coming ever closer to Singapore, all without air support.